Amen. So we have been doing theological equipping class uh, here at Parkway for about uh, three and a half years or so. And for almost that entire time, we've been doing what's been called systematic theology. And so we have considered everything from theology proper, that's the study of the nature and character of God himself, into bibliology, which is the study of scripture. And we've uh, tackled things like hamartiology, the the doctrine of sin, anthropology, doctrine of man, soteriology, doctrine of salvation. Uh, And then last semester we did eschatology, which is end time. So we kind of ended the process of systematic uh, theology. And so this semester we're moving on from systematic theology. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that audio uh, if you're unfamiliar with some of those topics. But we're moving this semester into what we're calling apologetics, worldview, and world religions. In other words, uh, kind of how do we think, how do we defend? the faith, those sorts of things. And so this semester, these are some of the things that we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about where did we get the Bible? What about uh, alleged inconsistencies or contradictions that we find in the Bible? What do we do with things like the Bible uh, in some sense approving of or at least not explicitly condemning slavery? What do we do with uh, the fact that God commands Israel to slaughter the nations? Uh, is there such a thing as absolute truth? What, what role do presuppositions and assumptions play in our thinking? So we're going to spend some time talking about worldview and apologetics, and then we're going to move on from there and, uh, and spend a little bit of time looking at major world religions and, uh, and various cults and kind of defending the faith uh, against that, and talking a little bit also about how to engage uh, your neighbor who uh, might be uh, Muslim or uh, Jewish or whatever it might be. And so uh, buckled up, it should be a fun semester. Today what we want to do is kind of lay the foundation for the semester by really talking about the question of knowledge and authority and truth. Uh, in Christianity. Next week we'll be talking about uh, truth in particular, but this week kind of knowledge and authority. What is our authority? How do we have knowledge? What is knowledge? And I want to talk about why is this important? There's a number of reasons why this is important. Raise your hand if you have or have heard of Twitter or Facebook. All right? All right, that's everyone. Everyone at least has heard of it. Well, if you've heard of it, if you've ever been on any of these social media platforms, you're probably aware that there is not only this huge cultural chasm that now exists, but there is also a huge chasm that exists even within evangelicalism over issues like gender and social justice and race and so forth. So why is that? Why is our, our, our culture, and, I, and, and by our, I mean not just American culture, but evangelical culture? culture, Christian culture here in America, why is it so fragmented? Why is it so fractured? Why is it so divided? And the, the answer to that is because of the way that we approach knowledge and truth and authority and so forth. Evangelicalism has always been fragmented to some degree. There's always been debates about whether or not believer's baptism or infant baptism is correct. There's always been debates about Calvinism versus Arminianism. There's always been uh, debates about covenantalism versus dispensationalism uh, and so forth. But now what's really interesting about our kind of cultural milieu is that uh, it is, that's, I said that really weird, but uh, is that it's fragmented in areas where the church has consistently held a universal opinion. In other words, now evangelicalism is uh, fractured and divided in places where historically there was absolute uh, uniformity and, uh, and unity. So questions like, can a woman preach uh, in the, uh, the corporate gathering or serve as elders? Uh, 
What should we think of social justice? What should we think of uh, the Me Too movement? Uh, What should we think about gun control or voting? Uh, I would argue that even though Christians disagree on these issues, the Bible itself gives some pretty clear direction. And we have to confess that the Bible gives clear direction on any of these topics if we're going to hold to the sufficiency of Scripture. If there are areas of life and godliness over which the Scripture doesn't speak, what in the world does that mean of sufficiency? In what sense is Scripture sufficient if there are these vast areas uh, of our lives where Scripture doesn't speak? So I would, uh, I would argue that Scripture does speak. So that's one of the reasons that this is so important is because we live in a fragmented culture that is more divided than it has ever been. Another reason is because uh, of the vast amount of ignorance there is within the church. I was reading a, a study recently that, uh, that found that some 85% of teenagers who identify as Christians say that they don't believe in absolute truth. 85% of teenagers who identify as Christians don't believe in absolute truth. This same survey polled uh, a group of, uh, of people who profess to be Christians, whether they're teenagers or adults, and, uh, and asked them a series of questions to kind of assess or gauge whether or not they had a consistent biblical worldview and found that less than 10% of the people that they surveyed had an actual biblical worldview. That means nine out of 10 people who call themselves Christians don't actually have a biblical understanding of self, of sin, of ethics, of politics, of uh, whatever it might be. So raise your hand if you like to go to the ocean. Raise your hand if you like to go to the ocean. Okay, I love going to the ocean. Notice I didn't say going in the ocean because I don't want to get eaten by a shark. And I assume that is what is uh, inevitably going to uh, happen. So imagine, though, that you're at the beach And for whatever reason, you decide, I'm going to chance it, I'm going to go into the water, and you have a big raft, like an inflatable raft or something like that. And so you get on that raft and you paddle out, let's say you paddle about 100 yards or so, and then you decide, you know what, I'm just going to take a nap there on the raft. Now, assuming that you don't get eaten by a shark, which is a huge assumption, you wake up in 30 minutes, and what has happened? You've drifted. You are no longer anywhere near. You look to the shore and you're no longer near where your umbrella or your cooler or whatever it is where your friends are. You have drifted somewhere far uh, away. That's the same thing that happens when it comes to thinking, when it comes to truth and so forth. Our, Our culture is like a current. It is drifting in a particular direction. Do you want to guess whether or not it's drifting toward or away from Christ? Toward or away from Scripture, toward or away from truth. Obviously, it's not uh, toward, it is away. Culture is always drifting away. And so unless you're able to identify that current, you're able to identify that drift, you're going to drift along with it. And so that's part of the purpose of this semester is to point out areas where our culture has drifted. So I want to start with a, a historical analysis. That's what my graduate degree is in historical theology. So I, I love history. Uh, one of the reasons I love history is because it helps us to understand the present. If you want to know why, I, I've told this story before, why am I scared of lizards? All right? The reason is because my brother would take lizards and he would put them on his ears like earrings and then he would dangle them like this. And it terrified me as a four-year-old. And so to this day as a 41-year-old, I'm scared of lizards. Why? Because you understand now the history behind it. It's not just this, it is an irrational fear, but there is some reason behind it. 
Why is, uh, why is uh, Zach scared of flying? Because he had a, a particular bad experience on a flight. Why is Tim scared of ants? Because he saw the movie Ants or something like that. I don't know. There's some reason behind it, though. If you understand the history, you understand where it is. And so I want to start with a historical analysis to help us understand why is there such a cultural distrust of authority? Why is there such theological confusion in churches? Why is America so disjointed? Why is even evangelicalism so fragmented? And I think history can uh, help us with that. So I want to begin by asking the question, how do we know what we know? How is it that you know what you know? They call, uh, we call this epistemology, uh, the study of knowledge. How do you know what you know? How do you know that your beliefs are validated and founded and so forth? There's lots of ways that you can answer that. You know things through the Bible, through church, uh, tradition, through logic, through science and nature, and, uh, and so forth. But historically, uh, the church kind of had four main sources uh, of authority and uh, authority when it comes to knowledge. And these four sources are working in conjunction with each other. They're working in conjunction with each other. And those sources of authority and knowledge are revelation and tradition and reason and then experience or, uh, or feeling. I'm going to kind of paint with a broad brush just because we're trying to, to, to understand trends and, uh, and tendencies. Uh, but uh, imagine you are in the first few centuries of the, uh, the church. We call this the patristic period from about the beginning of the church all the way through around 550 uh, AD or so. The, the patristic period because of the church fathers uh, is why we get the word uh, patristic there. And so in this period, you have these four sources of authority that are all working hand in t- uh, hand. They're all interwoven together. And so imagine, if you will, uh, that you have uh, revelation. And revelation is like the sun, right? It is the greatest light that you have. And so this is the, the, the early church has this primacy uh, of viewing revelation of scripture as being their ultimate authority. But in addition to that, you also have tradition. And imagine tradition is like a string of, uh, of lights. And so you have one father and one father and one father and all of these different lights are contributing. Uh, and then in addition to revelation and uh, tradition, you also have region, reason or logic, which I'll symbolize as a light bulb because part of the enlightenment uh, sort of project uh, is modernity and, and all of the inventions and that kind of stuff. And then you also have feelings or experience, which uh, I, I made as a candle because that still seems sort of contemplative. Uh, and so this is the patristic period. They have all of these sources of, uh, of, uh, of authority and uh, ways of knowing what you know, uh, answering the questions of epistemology. And I want to see what happens historically over time to these sources of authority. So move on from the patristic period into what we call the medieval uh, period, the medieval period roughly from about 550 through the beginning of the Reformation around 1500. In general, what you see is during the medieval period, you have all four uh, of these, but you actually have something interesting that happens. Uh, Whereas in the patristic period, this was primary. You actually have during the um, medieval period, you have the primacy of tradition because what happens is there is a uh, reorientation or a redefinition of tradition. Whereas for the, uh, the church fathers, tradition is just kind of the oral articulation of revelation. Now, all of a sudden in the medieval church, or the, the medieval Roman Catholic church in particular, you have this exaltation of the church itself as being the sole interpreter of scripture. 
and so because they are the ones who interpret Scripture, they therefore say what Scripture says, and so they actually kind of take a place of primacy over Revelation. So imagine this, this uh, uh, sun kind of shrinking and becomes smaller, uh, and then imagine this string of lights becomes bigger and brighter. That's what you have during the uh, medieval period. Tradition kind of usurps the role of revelation, and rather than revelation now being the norm, being the standard, being the canon, tradition becomes the standard. So then you get into the Reformation period, the Reformation period roughly from 1500 to uh, 1600 or so. The reformers themselves, guys like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and, and so forth, the reformers themselves, they really love tradition. So you'll see, if you read the reformers, they're always quoting guys like Augustine. But you also have this uh, suspicion of tradition, not the way that the patristics would have defined tradition, but the way the medieval period had kind of redefined tradition uh, to take the place of Scripture. This is why during the Reformation you have uh, things like sola scriptura, which doesn't mean that Scripture is our only authority, but it means that Scripture is the ultimate uh, authority. And so subsequent generations, uh, actually what they do is they actually begin to cut off the role of tradition completely. Part of the reason that you have such a distrust of, uh, of tradition as a 21st century American Christian is because of some of the seeds that were laid during the Reformation because of the way that the medieval period had redefined uh, tradition. So that's the medieval period. You kind of have this downplaying or this neglect of, uh, of tradition because of what the medieval period had done to it. Move out of the Reformation. Let's move now into the what we call the Enlightenment or modernity, uh, modernism, and uh, so r- roughly the 1600s into the early uh, 20th century. And uh, uh, modernity is this uh, sort of all-encompassing way of viewing the world. There's various tenets of uh, modernism. One of the things that's a really strong tenet of modernism is the inviability of reason. Reason is going to help us solve all that plagues mankind. And, uh, and so you have Descartes in this period. I think, therefore, I am. So the inviability of reason. Reason is kind of the ultimate uh, thing that uh, humanity can uh, pursue. You also have the assurance of progress. There's this idea things are continually going to get better. As we apply reason to our situation in life, as we invent new things, as we see technological advancement, uh, that things are going to continue to get better and better and better. And then you also have this assumption of the goodness of man. Unfortunately, along with, the, uh, with this sort of primacy of reason, there is also a devaluation of revelation. Why is that? Because revelation by its very nature is supernatural. Revelation comes from outside of us. Revelation is something that God hands down to us. And one of the tenets of uh, modernity, of the Enlightenment, is the idea that uh, knowledge is this closed sort of system. That we, by our own reason, I think, therefore I am, we, by virtue of our own reason, can solve humanity's problem. We don't need revelation. So there's this devaluing of revelation. Then you move out of modernity into this period that's roughly could be called post-modernity, the present period from uh, around 1950 or so. Again, these dates are really loose uh, into the present. So what happens in the early 20th century to challenge the tenets of uh, modernity? 
What happens in the early 20th century? Well, you have two world wars. You have uh, nuclear bombs. Uh, you have tens of millions of people that are killed in communist China and uh, in Cambodia and uh, in Russia under Stalin and so forth. In a sense, you see all of the tenets of modernity, the inviability of reason, the assurance of progress, the goodness of man, all of those things don't make sense in light of the gas chambers of Auschwitz. So you see all of a sudden all of the hope that mankind has for reason has faded out. And so you now no longer have this as well. And unfortunately, you can't go back and capture these things. So what are you left with? You're left with experience. You're left with yourself. You're left just you alone in a room holding your own little candle, hoping and praying that you have the, uh, the answers. And so what you're left with is feeling and suspicion. You also get this huge suspicion of authority as a result of postmodernity, uh, that all truth claims are seen not as objective uh, realities, but instead truth is seen as a construct that's used by the strong to oppress the weak. That's, what, uh, that's one of the tenets of postmodernity, that, uh, that truth in its basic essence is an attempt to oppress or to suppress uh, those who are marginalized. Rather than seeing authority as being a gift from God, which it is in Scripture, that should be stewarded to serve others, authority is seen as a curse that is used to oppress uh, others. It's seen as a power play. So again, you're left with feelings, you're left with experience, you're left with yourself. Yourself, you are the ultimate authority. And uh, so just as a recap, in the Reformation, you have this suspicion of tradition, so get rid of that. In the Enlightenment, you have a suspicion of revelation, so get rid of that. In postmodernity, you have a suspicion of reason, so get rid of that. What are you left with? Feelings and experience. Truth and authority are basically just like a little flickering candle. No longer is there a belief in capital T truth, but instead you have my truth and your truth and his truth and her truth and so forth. This is the air that you and I breathe. Whether you realize it or not, this is the air that we breathe. This is the water in which we swim. This plagues and permeates absolutely everything. TV, movies, social media, politics, even theology within churches. So our goal, hopefully, that we're trying to accomplish here at Parkway in sermons and in theological equipping and community groups and on and on we could go is to recapture and reorient all of these sources to see the role of revelation, to see the role of tradition, to see the role of reason, and then also to see the role of experience and, uh, and so forth. So why do we do expository sermons? Why do we do theological uh, equipping class? Because we believe that truth is revealed and scripture is our ultimate authority. So we want to uphold the reality of revelation. Why do we talk about logical fallacies and absolute truth? Why are we doing things like that in this systematic, uh, in this uh, theological equipping class? Uh, why do we write papers? Why do we argue for positions? Why not just simply state this is what we believe and not give reasons for it? Because we believe that reason is important. 
Why do we quote church history? Why is it that you'll often hear us talking about early church heretics and early church fathers and guys like Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and so forth? Because we don't want to be uh, ignorant to what the church has always believed. We believe that uh, it is helpful for us to understand 2,000 years of church history so that we can see our own blind spots. In other words, the goal for us should be to swim against the currents of the past 2,000 years and to actually cultivate a biblical worldview. In other words, you can see a lot better if you don't just rely on the candle, but you instead turn on these other sources of light. You open the shades and you allow the sun uh, to shine in. So let's talk a little bit about truth and knowledge and what a biblical worldview uh, looks like. So just a few points. I had like 10 points and I reduced it down to uh, three and, uh, and then three Uh, other things. And so uh, three thoughts on thinking, three things that you need to know on uh, regarding knowledge. And so the first one that God desires and even commands that we think and study. Think about the fact that God chose to save, God chose to deliver, God chose to rescue through words. How does he create the world? He speaks it into existence. Christ is called the word. Christ is called the truth. How does Christ do the things that he does? He heals, he casts out demons, he calms the storm, he raises Lazarus. How does he do these things? By speaking, by speech, by words. God using words implies that he wants us to understand those words. God desires for us to think, which is why we have passages that tell us to love the Lord our God, not only with all of our heart, not only with all of our soul, not only with all of our strength, but also with what? all of our minds. That's why we have passages that say this. So you have these in your notes, 2 Timothy 2, 7. Think over what I say. That's a command. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Romans 12, 2. Again, a command. Do not be conformed to this world. Okay? How do we not be conformed? By being transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 1 Corinthians 14, 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Again, these are commands. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is uh, complete. We tend to, th- uh, to think about this, taking every thought captive. We tend to think about that in regards to things like lust or something like that. And yes and amen to taking lustful thoughts captive. But that's not actually the, the primary application in, uh, in Corinthians. Instead, the primary application, the context, is dealing with falsehood, with falseness, with untruth, with doctrine, with theology. And so Paul says that the answer is good theology, good doctrine. Or Proverbs, if you want to look back in the Old Testament, Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your ear to understanding. Yes, if you call out for it, uh, call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. In other words, what all of these passages are saying is that God is not glorified in our ignorance. That doesn't mean, that absolutely doesn't mean that you have to have a PhD 
in philosophy. That doesn't mean you have to have a doctorate in theology. It doesn't mean that you have to be able to uh, spot read Greek or Hebrew or something like that. But it does mean that every single person who professes to be a Christian has a responsibility, has a duty to think, to ponder, to meditate, to study, to reason. If they're able to read or if they're not able to learn how to read or to try to learn how to read. For some reason, we tend to think that there are like two types of Christians. You have those who are head and you have those who are heart. You have those who really like to read and then you have those who just don't like to read or don't like to study or don't like to think. In what other area of responsibility do we do that? Imagine you meet somebody and they say, I know that the Bible tells me to pray, but I'm just not a prayer. So I just never pray. Would you let them get away with that? Or imagine that someone were to say, yes, Scripture might say that I should belong to a church, but I'm an introvert, so I just worship at home, alone. Would you allow them to, uh, to persist in that? Or imagine that I say, I know that Scripture tells me that I should love my wife, but I really want to sleep with other women. Would I get away with that? Of course not. So why would we, uh, in this area, allow someone to say, I know the scripture might say that I should think, that I should study, that I should meditate, that I should ponder all of these things, that I should have my mind uh, uh, transformed and renewed, but that's just not me. I'm more of a heart guy. That's absurd. In other words, if you don't like to do these things, that's okay. But it's not okay in the sense of just give in to that It's okay in the sense of you can be forgiven, but you need to repent. That's not something that we should be proud of, that you don't like to read, that you don't like to study, whatever it might be. That's something that you should actually lament and repent of and and pray that God would uh, help you. Again, you don't have to learn Greek or Hebrew or get a graduate degree or anything like that, but you do have to figure out a way to obey God's commands that you would ponder and think and meditate and study his word. That's the first thing you need to know. Uh, And this will lay a foundation for what we're doing over the semester. If you wonder why we do theological equipping class, if you wonder why things are a little bit heady at Parkway, it's because this is a foundation. Your life is transformed by the renewing of your mind. The reason that you struggle with any sin is because of a theological discrepancy. There is something that you don't really believe about God and his nature and his love or sin or whatever it might be. The second thing you need to know is that thinking is a discipline and labor. Like everything else, it takes work. It takes practice. Everyone thinks, every single one of us thinks, but not everyone does it well. Some are better thinkers than others. Some of that has to do with gifts and talents. Uh, Some people just are born with a natural capacity uh, to think a little bit better than others, but the overwhelming majority of it is not just an innate natural talent. Instead, it's a result of discipline. It's a work of diligence. It's a result of hard work work. In other words, you don't need an IQ of 180. You need desire and discipline. If you're going to drive a car here in Texas, what do you have to do? You have to take a class. You have to prove some level of proficiency. If you want to get a license to carry a firearm, what do you have to do? You have to take a class. You have to prove some level of proficiency. Why was it that Jack Wilson, the hero of the white settlement shooting, Why was it that he was able to make that shot? Because he practiced, because he trained, because of hard work and diligence. It wasn't luck for him. It was hard work. And uh, and so when I was a a kid, I was a a, a pretty small uh, kid, so I had no chance of making the A-team 
in, uh, in basketball. The best I could hope for was the B team. A team did drills. They practiced. They trained. They did all these sorts of things. You know what the B team did? Coach threw a ball at us and just kind of let us loose like ants, all right? And, uh, and so was it a lot of fun? It was a whole lot of fun. Did that actually make any of us better basketball players? No, not at all. Uh, that's true of what we do in regards to thinking as well. That uh, most of our teachers, most of our pastors and so forth never really take the time to actually teach us how to think. They just kind of throw us a ball and tell us go and uh, play. That's true in schools. Uh, when you're in school, you learn laws of math. You learn the quadratic formula, Pythagorean theorem, or something like that. Uh, that's true in physics. You learn the laws of physics. But how many of us actually learn like the laws of logic, the laws of critical thinking? That's not really what uh, tr- uh, schools are going to uh, focus on. It's true in churches as well. This is not just a public education bashing. That's true in our churches. As a kid, I learned all about Moses. I knew who Moses was. I, I knew uh, various things about him. I had no clue how he fit into the overar- uh, overarching storyline of Scripture. In other words, I learned facts about Scripture. I didn't actually learn how to read Scripture until much later uh, in life. And, uh, and so the goal of this class, the goal of Parkway, is not just to teach you what to believe or what to think, but also how to think. That's what we're trying to do, is trying to help us corporately, not just me teach you, but us teach each other how it is that we might be able to actually do what God has told us to do, to take captive what God has revealed. It does no good to just hand someone a Bible and say, here, read this. You have to teach them how to read it. You have to teach them how to think biblically. You have to teach them how to think Christianly. Arius, the church heretic who denied the deity of the Son, he read the Bible. Pelagius, the church heretic who denied uh, the uh, original sin of the fallenness of man, he read the Bible. Joseph Smith, the the, the founder of uh, the Latter-day Saints, he read the Bible. All false teachers, all heretics read the Bible. So the goal isn't just to read the Bible, but to read it rightly to read it through a biblical Christian lens. That's what we're hoping to do. But thinking rightly, thinking biblically, thinking Christianly takes effort. Rome wasn't built in a day, and your mind is not going to be renewed overnight. It's a lifelong process. It takes not only desire, but discipline and diligence and effort. So read the Bible. Memorize it. Study it. Come to theological equipping class. Come to services. Listen to stuff online. Read good books. Talk to your friends about the deep things of God. Question your presupposition. Cultivate the skill of thinking that your minds may be renewed so that your life would be transformed, especially in light of our next point, which is that our ability to reason or to think uh, or to know has been affected by sin. Theologians call this the noetic effects uh, of the fall, N-O-E, O-E, Noetic has nothing to do with the biblical character of Noah. I said one time something about noetic, and someone thought I meant uh, Noah. Uh, it's from the Greek word for uh, mind. So theologians call this the noetic offense, uh, effects of the fall. In other words, the fall has affected every part of us, our heart, our, our will, our, our affections, but also our minds. Our ability to think and reason has been uh, affected, has been perverted, has been distorted as a result of the fall. You see this throughout Scripture, Ephesians 4, 17 through 18. 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Romans one twenty one. for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, we should have the, a degree of epistemological humility uh, as we recognize we don't come to the table Your mind is not this perfectly calibrated instrument that is able to assess, engage, and evaluate truth. Your mind has been affected by the fall, and therefore, it needs to be recalibrated. It needs to be reoriented. It needs to be checked against something. We come with broken vessels. It needs to be checked against Scripture, yes, and amen. It also needs to be checked against tradition. It needs to be checked against uh, logic. It needs to be checked against even experience and so forth. We come as broken vessels. That said, we can recalibrate our minds by diligently applying ourselves to do so. Over time, our minds can be transformed and uh, and renewed. So God commands us to think rightly, but our thinking is tainted by sin. That's all the more reason for uh, us to apply ourselves to the task with discipline and diligence. That's what we're hoping to accomplish this uh, semester. What I want to do the rest of our time uh, this morning, I want to give a few examples of culturally accepted assumptions about truth and knowledge that keep us as evangelicals from thinking well. Uh, These are things that are not true, but are so pervasive in our culture, so permeate our culture Uh, that it seems as though most uh, 21st century American Christians believe them to be true. Originally, I had seven of these. My lesson was two hours long, so I'm down to three, and maybe the other four will show up some other time. So three unbiblical cultural assumptions. I got these mostly just on a rant on uh, on Twitter. So I I opened Twitter. I saw these three things immediately, and so I decided these are the ones that I'm going to go with. So uh, three unbiblical cultural assumptions. Again, I disagree with these, uh, the statements, the way they are phrased here in your notes. Number one, truth and love are at opposite ends of a spectrum, meaning that uh, more love means less truth or more truth means less love. Who has ever heard something that implies that sort of idea, that truth and love are at opposite ends of a spectrum? That is unfortunately what a lot of our culture thinks and what a lot of evangelicals think. Now, most won't come out and say that in those words, but they simply live like it. So let me give you a few examples. I just believe that God is love and therefore fill in the blank. My divorce is acceptable because God is love. My same-sex relationship is good and right because God is love and so forth. Or if you disagree with a particular method of missions or evangelism uh, or don't agree with a form of social justice theory then people will say that means you don't love the lost or you don't love the poor, you don't love people of other races. This is embedded into our culture. If you don't support abortion, then you don't love women or political discussions on gun control or poverty or racism and so forth all fall victim to this false dichotomy between the head and the heart, between truth and love. But truth and love are never at odds. Otherwise, how could God command us to love him with our Minds. In fact, whatever is most in accordance with truth is always what is most loving. We should always be seeking to sift any act of love through the filter of truth because you cannot love without truth. Zeal without direction is not a good thing. You read in the Old Testament about the prophets of Baal. They loved Baal. 
They offered sacrifices. They did these works for Baal. That's not a good thing. In the Gospels, you see Martha, and she loves serving while Mary's just sitting there listening to Jesus. In Acts, you have these characters called the seven sons of Sceva. What do they try to do? Try to cast out a demon, right? Those all seem like good things. Offering sacrifices, serving others, casting out demons all seem like good works. And yet each of these characters are critiqued because their, serve, their service, their love is not actually filtered through truth. So service in and of itself is not a good thing or a bad thing. It depends on whether or not you're serving or you're loving or whatever it is, is filtered through truth. In fact, it's truth that informs and fuels our love. Truth and love are not at odds. We say all the time that theology always should lead to doxology. The things that you believe should always lead you into worship. Theology is the kindling. It's the firewood that we gather around our hearts for the Spirit to ignite. You've probably known kids who go off to some sort of Christian camp and they come back and they seem to be on fire for Jesus only to find that those very affections in two weeks have been completely quenched. Why? Because there was nothing actually to burn there. There's nothing uh, there that actually will sustain those affections, will sustain that fire. It's kind of like filling your fireplace with nothing but newspaper. Is it going to ignite quickly? Absolutely. But is it going to burn for a long time? No, it's going to burn out just as quickly. Unfortunately, that's the overwhelming majority of what's preached in sermons, of what's sung in songs, of what's sold at Christian bookstores, and so forth. It's either so watered down that it won't burn at all, or it's so light and trivial that it doesn't uh, burn for long. This was the case even 60 years ago. C.S. Lewis, who himself is not the greatest theologian, But uh, he's a great writer and thinker, and he wrote this. He wrote, for my own part, I tend to find that doctrinal books are often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. And I rather suspect that the same experience may await others. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hands. By the way, if you ask me for a book on depression or if you ask me for a book on lust, most of the time I won't actually recommend a book on depression or lust. I'm going to recommend instead a book on the nature and character of God. Why? Because your, your lust, your depression, whatever that might be, is really just a symptom of a deeper underlying issue. And I want to deal with the actual root issue and not just the symptom. Not saying that you can't ever read books on lust or depression or whatever it might be. I'm saying there is a primary thing and then there is a secondary thing. So truth and love are not opposed. They are symbiotic. Truth fuels our love. My daughter, uh, all the time, she never wants to sleep and she never wants to eat. Instead, she wants to play. She's like the energizer bunny. She never runs out of energy. She always wants to play. But what she doesn't understand is that sleeping and eating is what actually energizes her to play. That's the same way with those who say, I really want to just love Jesus. I want to love people. I want to do missions. I want to do evangelism. I want to do all these things for God. And they never actually take time to actually study God. What happens eventually is it fizzles. It fades out. Why? Because there's nothing to actually sustain it. So B.B. Warfield, some of you have heard this quote before, but he was once asked, if 10 minutes in prayer, isn't that better than 10 hours of studying over your books? That's this division of the heart and the head that we talked about. His response is, 
Why not spend 10 hours in study while in prayer? Why do you have to turn from God to turn to your books? Or vice versa. So, truth and love are not at opposite ends of a spectrum. Second thing that you'll often hear, which is incorrect, is that tone or form is more important than, or even as important than, uh, as content. Let me give you a few examples where you might hear this. So, uh, there was something on Twitter recently, a well-known pastor critiqued a female preacher, uh, and all the uh, Twitterverse, whatever you call that thing, exploded with comments. And all the comments were on his tone, rather than actually dealing with his argument, whether he was actually right in what he was saying. Instead, they just critiqued the way that he said it. Or a pastor, this actually happened here at Parkway. A pastor will use a word that's used 80 times in the Bible, and someone will say, I don't like that you use that word. And so they leave the church. A visitor to Parkway actually did that. Or a person will suggest that you, you can't speak to this issue this particular issue because you're not of the right gender or you're not of the right uh, race or you're not of the right socioeconomic class or whatever it might be. In other words, the form of the arguer is more important than the actual argument, that the tone is more important than the content or whatever it might be. This is existentialism. This is unbiblical. If you want to know what existentialism is, go read. We, We wrote a blog. The most controversial thing we've ever written, probably also the most prophetic and profound, it's called The Evangelical Drift. It's on our website. You can read that. We got a lot of comments. Most of my rant in this lesson is from comments that we got on, uh, on that. So the result of this, though, is that uh, we find ourselves in a, in a context where it, it's not the best argument that actually wins. It's just whoever's nicest or whoever's kindest or whoever is gentlest or whatever it, uh, it might be, regardless of the actual content. Does that mean, am I saying that tone is irrelevant? Not at all. The Bible tells us to correct our opponents with gentleness and to be kind and to be patient. But it also depicts the prophets, the apostles, and even Christ himself using mockery and sarcasm and ridicule and at times even being pretty harsh. Was Jesus being sinful when he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs or broods of vipers? Of course not. Was Jesus being sinful or rude or mean or unloving or unkind whenever he calls the Canaanite woman a dog? Of course not. Right? Whatever it means to be gentle and gracious and to correct your opponents like that, it cannot mean that we're never sarcastic, never prophetic. Most of the time in my dealings with my daughter Larkin, I don't yell at her. But if she's in the middle of a street and a truck is bearing down at her, I'm going to scream at her. Why? Because the danger now has elevated my tone. That's what's going on in most of these conversations when someone will critique someone's tone uh, and ignore the truth is because actually what's going on is they don't agree that there's actually a danger there, all right? That's what's actually going on there is it's, uh, it's an ad hominem. I'm attacking the person and their tone instead of actually dealing with the argument because I don't actually like the argument. So the issue is not really the tone. The issue is truth. Now, there are definitely some people who are too harsh to me, and there are a lot of pastors that I've listened to or that I follow on Twitter that seem to delight in reaching always for sarcasm and ridicule and mockery. It's like that's the only tool on their tool belt. That's not a good thing. Those people should repent of that. But I think the, by uh, far and away, the more pervasive issue in evangelicalism is, uh, is that we do the opposite. We overemphasize tone to the neglect of con- uh, content. We dismiss the message simply because we don't like the method or the messenger or the medium or whatever it might be. So Tone is more important than content is the cultural assumption. The biblical reality is that content is more important than tone. 
Tone is important, but your content is always more important than your tone. Third, confidence in a position is a sign of pride. Imagine that you write something on Facebook about Christ's resurrection and someone accuses you of pride. After all, not everyone believes that Christ rose from the dead, so how can you be so confident in that? That's surely pride. Or you teach on baptism, or you teach on something else, and someone disagrees, so what do they do? They call you arrogant. Why? Because you're confident. And according to the cultural sort of assumptions of the day, confidence equals arrogance. Honestly, just about every time we post anything that's nearly controversial online, someone would call me or Zach or Tim or whoever arrogant. I get it when it comes to Zach and Tim, but me, come on. (laughs) But where else do you do this, right? Whenever you're in math class and your teacher stands up and says one plus one equals two and refuses to admit that they are wrong on that issue, do you call them proud? No. They obviously, they have a right to be confident in that particular case. When Paul says that circumcision is of no value, even though a number of people, they're called Judaizers in the early church, believe that circumcision was of great value, is Paul arrogant for his position? Were the prophets arrogant when they rebuked Israel's king? Of course not. Being confident in a position is no sure sign of arrogance. So what's happening here? Why have we confused confidence with arrogance? Well, one thing that I think has happened is that there's this subtle misunderstanding of what it means to be a lifelong learner. I encountered this uh, in an email a few months back. Someone said that we can't be sure that we're right on this particular topic that we were talking about because many Christians were wrong about this other thing. In her case, it was she was talking about slavery. Because many Christians were wrong about slavery, therefore we shouldn't say that we're right about anything. We shouldn't be speaking on a particular topic with any level of confidence or that is arrogance. But you see how inconsistent that is? If the fact that some people got some things wrong mean that we can't be confident of any conviction today, then that also means that we can't be confident about the conviction that we can't be confident, right? It's this infinite loop. It's like that scene in The Princess Bride. So clearly I cannot choose the wine in front of me, right? It just keeps going on uh, and on. This emailer thought that lifelong learning meant that you always have an open mind. I'm reminded of what G.K. Chesterton uh, once said. He said, thinking is like eating. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. The Bible actually critiques this form of lifelong learning that is just perpetually have an open mind, never actually have confidence or conviction about anything. 2 Timothy 3, 7. It critiques those who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. What our culture calls lifelong learning and humility, the Bible calls sin. Here's the irony. Imagine, if you will, that you write a paper on some theological topic. And in that paper, you provide this comprehensive overview of all of the reasons why you should believe this particular truth, whatever it is. You walk through the biblical exegesis, you walk through a historical analysis, you provide an overwhelming weight of evidence showing that every pastor, every theologian up until 1950 or whatever it is, has always held to this particular view. Uh, and, uh, and so you post it online and someone writes back and say, I disagree And I think that you're arrogant for acting like this is the case. What's wrong with that? Well, there's a couple of things that are wrong with that. The first one is in regards to truth, it doesn't matter if I'm arrogant or not. It doesn't matter if you're arrogant or not. Hitler was a murderous maniac. Yet if he says one plus one equals two, is that still true? 
Is there any doubt as of that? No, right? Does that mean we love Hitler? No, absolutely we don't love Hitler. But he's right about certain things. So the fact that I'm arrogant doesn't necessarily mean that my argument is unsound, but that's what we do in our culture. Again, it's another ad hominem. I don't like the argument, so I'm going to attack the arguer. We do this all the time. Uh, Luther was wrong on justification because he uh, was mean to Jews later in life. Or Calvin was wrong on election because he approved of the execution of Servetus. Or Edwards was wrong because he owned slaves or whatever it might be. They might have been wrong on those issues. Calvinism might be wrong, but you have to prove it on the basis of an actual argument, not on the basis of what Calvin might have done. So you have to actually make the better argument. So assume that the author is, is arrogant. That still doesn't solve the issue of whether or not the argument is right or not. So that's the first thing. It doesn't really matter if he's arrogant or not. The second thing is who is actually more likely to be arrogant. That's what I think is the irony of this whole thing. It's the person who says, this is the word of God, this is the word is, what the church has said about it, or is the person, let's call him Gary. No, no offense, Gary. That's literally what I have in the notes, and then I realized Gary's in here. We'll call him something else. Uh, call him Joe. There's probably a Joe in here. here. Uh, is the, the person who holds an opinion that can't be proven from Scripture isn't held in church history? Who's more arrogant? The person who says, I stand in line with Scripture. I have all of these reasons. I stand in line with all the other Christians throughout time. Or the person who says, I'm all by myself. I'm holding my little candle. Who's more likely to be arrogant? I would argue it's actually the latter. The person who's making the accusation of arrogance is actually the one who is more arrogant, which means intellectual arrogance has less to do with thinking you're right and more to do with thinking you're right in spite of, contrary to the evidence. All right, which means that the best argument should always win regardless of tone or arrogance or whatever. Pride can manifest as confidence or can even manifest as lack of confidence. For instance, when Jesus asked the Pharisees questions, they often said, we don't know. He asks, uh, by what authority does uh, John d- do these things? And, uh, and their response is, we don't know. Is that an evidence of humility? No, that's actually an evidence of pride. They didn't want to answer the question because they knew that they were going to be trapped. And, uh, and so uh, pride can manifest as confidence. Pride can also be manifest as lack, as co- a lack of confidence. Likewise with humility. It can be uh, manifest in someone who is overly confident or it can be manifest in someone who lacks confidence. But confidence itself is no sure sign of pride or humility. I want to end with this example. We're going to go just a little bit, uh, a little bit late and then we'll uh, pray and do some Q&A. But a couple of years ago I shared this story uh, I mentioned uh, how I had a discussion at my previous church with some friends about who would win in a fight, a fully grown grizzly or a mountain lion. Now, notice I didn't say a black bear and an African lion. Very clearly, I said a mountain lion, which is different from an African lion, and a grizzly bear, which is different from a uh, black bear. And so we had this discussion. To me, it's very obvious. I think that a grizzly would win uh, that fight. Uh, but two buddies of mine disagreed, and those two happened to be the two most outdoorsy guys that I know. They're real Ron Swanson types. Uh, But they were convinced that a lion, a mountain lion, would win hands down. The first one, let's call him Jason, because that's his real name. (laughs) And uh, I want to make fun of him. But he was convinced that a lion would win, so I tried facts and figures. I, uh, I pulled out, you know, Wikipedia or whatever and talked about the relative size and strength 
uh, of, uh, of each, the, the relative speed of each, the thickness of uh, a bear's hide. Uh, I talked about the mountain lion's method of killing, that it would jump down from above onto uh, its prey and how that works really well for a deer that's roughly the same size as a mountain lion but wouldn't work well uh, on something that is massively bigger uh, than it. And it'd be like Tim jumping down on a normal-sized human or something. And, uh, and so we talked about all of these things, but Jason wasn't convinced. So I asked him, what, what would it take to actually convince you that you're wrong? And so, uh, so Jason and I agreed that we would survey a number of experts. Now, he didn't know, but I have a family friend who's a park ranger at uh, Yellowstone, one of the few places that actually has both grizzlies and, uh, and mountain lions. And, uh, and so we uh, Facebook messaged her. I had my mom do it. And, uh, and so she talked to all of her ranger buddies. She had uh, 25 total people that she surveyed. Of those 25, 24 of them said a grizzly would win. Now, you would think that since he had said, I will agree to this method being decisive, that he would then say, you know what, you're right. Did he say that? Of course not, right? No one ever changes their mind in a debate, a debate on anything. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, that didn't end the debate. Uh, in fact, six months later, Jason happened to go to Yellowstone. He had a, a vacation where he went up there with some friends, and he ran into an actual scientist, a guy with a Ph.D., and so he asked that guy what he thought, and that guy said a lion would win. And so Jason sent me a, uh, a video uh, of this. I sent back a text and said, what's this guy's degree in? And Jason responded, something like ecology. <laughs> Nothing to do with the issue. It's like Neil Tyson deGrasse giving a lecture on economics or something like that. He's not an expert in that field. It's hardly compelling. But to this day, Jason says that a lion would win. That's Jason. The other guy we'll call Chris, because that's his name, but Chris was a, a hunter. He was a, a again, he was a, a man's man, outdoorsy sort of guy, and he was certain that a lion would win. But one day, he goes on a, a hunting trip, and he runs into a guy who is generally thought of as the leading mountain lion expert. Uh, this guy has trapped uh, and killed hundreds and hundreds of lions and tagged them and studied them and so forth. He just happened to run into this guy randomly, and so obviously he asked him the question, and the guy laughed, and the guy said, hands down, a grizzly would win. And, uh, and so, what do you think Chris did? Chris actually changed his mind, right? He actually sent me a text. It was really funny. He said, I ran into the premier Puma pundit uh, of North America, and he gave me this long uh, text about how he had changed his mind. He repented. He recanted of his previous uh, view. I tell that story for, for two reasons. One, if you know uh, Jason, who works at my previous church, then you can laugh at him. The, uh, the second reason, though, is because Jason and Chris, although Jason's a great guy, I love, I love Jason, but Jason and Chris in this story represent two different ways of approaching truth, and I want you to be like Chris and not like Jason. See, Jason discounted the fact, right? Grizzlies are much stronger, they're much bigger, they're nearly as quick, they have a, a hide that's, uh, that's nearly impenetrable. Not only that, but Jason also discounted these legitimate authorities, these people who might actually have a degree of expertise and instead, he listened to this really bad authority, a guy with a degree in ecology or something uh, like that. That's a picture of modern evangelical thinking on most issues. We don't really take the time to read arguments, to listen to facts and figures, to weigh their merits. We don't actually listen to scholars and theologians on issues. Instead, we just quote something that we read on Twitter that sounds deep. Deep thinking and good thinking are not necessarily the same thing. So don't be like Jason. Instead, be like Chris. Uh, 
Have convictions. Think that you're right. Be confident in those convictions, but also be willing to consider other positions by weighing the relative strengths of those arguments and listening to the voice of reason and questioning your own presuppositions and so forth. At the end of the day, there is really no definitive way, unless you just wanted to engage in some sort of you know, animal hunger games or something, to figure out who would win between a mountain lion and a grizzly. But we have a way of discerning and assessing what is true in God's words, things like theology and ethics and so forth. And so that's what we're going to be doing over this semester. God has given you a mind, and he has commanded you to cultivate that mind for his glory and also for your joy. So hopefully that's what we're doing as we engage in this next semester. Let me Pray for us, and then uh, Zach will come up, and we'll do a little bit of the Q&A. If you are serving with kids, uh, you might want to transition out uh, now or maybe after the first question or something. So, Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you have given us minds, and I pray that you would help us to steward them appropriately, Lord, that we would not drift along the currents of culture, but instead that we would take captive what you have revealed, that we would uh, dive into your word, that we would ponder and meditate on it and listen to the voice of, uh, of, of, uh, of tradition and, uh, uh, and pursue uh, clear thinking with reason and logic and philosophy and so forth. And so we love you. We want to love you, not just with our hearts, but with our minds as well. And so would you help us in Christ's name? Amen.